The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello there. So I'm excited today because we've got a guest back for the second time, and this guest makes me feel so lazy. He's always up to something, <laughs> so we're going to catch up with him and see what's going on. No shortage of high achievers. Yeah, back for an encore to discuss the launch of his book and new business is Thomas Tofgard Yarvov. Welcome back, Thomas. How are you? Thank you. I'm nice. It's good to see you too. Listen, Practical Guide to Commissioning Process is now out in many forms. And uh, as is your commissioning tool, CX Planner, and a new business, you've been a busy boy. Bring us up to date. What's been going on? Well, yeah, there's been many changes since I saw you last time at the podcast. I've changed jobs. Last time I worked at Copenhagen Airport as head of our department for commissioning and asset management. Now I went full-time into my own company called CX Planner, which is a commissioning and project management software. I've been working on it for the past five years. So now it was time to go full-time and all in on it. So that's what I've been doing since the 1st of August this year. On the other commissioning front, my book is published in English and it's now available in paperback, hardback, and also on ebook. So many big things for me. Yeah, that is. I've written a couple of books and a couple of manuals. Big task, right? Big job. Takes a little bit of time. Adam, I know you've been working on some stuff too. Yeah, I've worked on I've got some books in late stages now with an editor, but you know, you give it to an editor and the red pen comes out and you feel bad about yourself. <laughs> Once you get it done, it's a huge relief, yeah. right? I mean, you sit back and you have a dram of good scotch because it's a huge accomplishment. Yeah. So tell us about the book because it's got a, a big influence. It's going to have a big influence in the commissioning world. So tell us about it. I hope so too. Well, yeah. it started in Danish and it took some time to prepare it in Danish. And then when it was published in Danish, I decided to go for the English version also. So there were a little bit of lag time before it was available also in English, some editing and some differences from the Danish construction sites and how to do construction to the more global, how to perform commissioning. But finally it's out and it's been really great for me. I've been contacted from all around the world, Australia, Sweden, US, Canada with feedbacks on the book. So it's going good with the book and people Luckily, like commissioning. Yeah, so I want to, just for our listeners, commissioning is a crazy business because I've been lucky enough to work in 21 countries and there are two constants in in that experience. One is staircase pressurization systems never work. And two, everybody has a different idea and definition of commissioning. So for someone to take that on and try and turn it into a how-to process is actually not a small project, it's a big project. And when I first saw this book, as you can see, I've got bonkers in it. I was very impressed with it because it's a how-to book. So our industry, particularly engineering, is really good at 
bashing the fundamentals into you, right? You come out, you can do calculus, you can do this, you can do that, right? But actual practical applied knowledge, I don't think the university system is very good at delivering. And I think there's a real gap for how-tos, like an application book, a guide, but something that's written by a practitioner who's actually lived it, right? And that's really what this is. That's why I'm a big fan of this, because if you're young or inexperienced and you just want a, a step process that's easy to digest and understand, that's what this does very well. So kudos for that. I noticed that the other thing I thought was quite smart, so I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with Ashray. In fact, I spoke at the Building Commission Conference recently, and uh, when I put my slides in for review, one of my slides says the worst possible definition of commission in the world is by Ashray. And I took a major dump on it, and everyone went, oh, you can't say that. <laughs> so they credit, they let me keep it in as long as I preface it was my opinion, right? And um, Ashray <laughs> is such a big organisation, a recognised body, that it's powerful, right? So therefore, if it puts a commissioning guide out, that's a powerful book just by definition, whether it's horrible or not. But you, I thought quite cleverly, took that as the guide, right? And used that as sort of like the different sort of stages. Now, first question, so there's a question in here somewhere. You just got to get it, right? So <laughs> first question is, in Denmark, where you practice mostly, does ASHRAE commissioning, is that the acknowledged process and definition? No, it's not. Right. It is the Danish standard, DS3090. Right. It is based on ASHRAE Guideline Zero and the Standard 202. Right. But it's changed to fit the Danish constructions. So right. we have the same faces and the same tools and same deliverables. So it looks like and feels like the ASHRAE commissioning process. Right. But I think it lacks some of the things which ASHRAE also lacks, uh, which I tried to show in the book. The book yeah. on each chapter includes a small table showing ASHRAE Guideline Zero, ASHRAE Standard 202, and the Danish Standard. And right. then it shows, is this activity described in the book required by one of these standards and guidelines? And do we need to deliver a document according to these guidelines and standards? Right. And as you also saw in the book, there's many places where some of the activities I'm describing is not required by the standards. Yeah. Because in Denmark, the Danish standard is from 2014, and a lot has happened since 2014. So we can see when we visit construction sites, the commissioning professionals, they perform the standard activities, but a lot of different activities has come too since then. The installations has become much more technical, and the system integrations test is not the same as it was in 2014. So... It includes some more aspects and some more ways on how to perform the things. So I like the ASHRAE and the Danish standard because it gives us a baseline, something to talk yeah. out from, but I don't see it as, as the 100% full commissioning how to do it. Yeah. I mean, you just actually brought up an interesting point, and that is, is that the rate of change in technology, yeah. does that support maybe you having a subscription service? That as things change and you write about it, that people can actually get those updates. So they subscribe. I'm just trying to put money in your bank, buddy. I'm just- <laughs> no, it's me. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> hey, you're welcome. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a big value in that. I mean, from 2014 to now, there has been lots of change in technology. And we can pretty much assume that that technology increase is going to keep going and that it'll have some impact on the commissioning process that, you know, getting people to sign up. If they're going to buy the book, they may as well have an opportunity to get into subscription service with you for updates. 
Actually, yeah, you know what? That's a great business idea. So I'm a big fan of NFPA 3 and 4, right? So the good thing about NFPA documents is they have weight, right, because they're required by insurers in the US, and they're updated every three years. Now, the updates aren't – it's not complete rewrites. They're incremental, but you get a thing if you subscribe to them and they say this is the update and this is a new book. So it's not like a guessing game, you know, what have they updated? I've got to read it all. And it's really well done. Most people don't know about that. <laughs> and this is, I think you're onto something there, Robert, right? One of my criticisms of the UK commissioning guys is they get updated every 15 or 20 years. That's a half a career. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. I mean, yeah. Yeah. technology moves on. Well, it actually also moves a little over to, to why I wrote the book. Yeah. I like the standards and I like the guidelines. But when I was new to commissioning, 10 years ago, I, I heard the word commissioning. I just wanted to know how to do it. It sounded yeah. interesting, some testing and stuff. But then I found ASHRAE Guideline Zero and Standard, and I couldn't figure out how to do it. It was too tough for me to read this process standard and then take it over to a real how-to project on site. Yeah. It was because I, I had a mentor, Ole Tyson, who taught me how to do the commissioning. Yeah. And then when he taught me, I could read the standard and do the, what's called the perspective across these things myself. I was in the need for something, how to do commissioning. And I think it's also needed for every newcomer to commissioning, both on educations and people who want to work with commissioning. It's hard to learn how to do it. Yeah, this so is the other people accidentally arriving commissioning. I know I tripped up and fell into it, right? No idea what it was. Even for two years when I was doing it, I didn't really know what it was, right? So you sort of accidentally come into it. And there is a real need for a STEM-based, hands-on how-to training or education for a year or six months. Is it like you become a practitioner and you go to college for a few weeks every quarter or something? You know, you need something like that to get you to where you need to go. That's why the standards and abilities of people in commission are so different. Right, because everyone's yeah. coming in from a different direction. There's no real how-to training, and you're just counting on people being smart enough to pick it up as they go along. And we know there is yeah. a scale of, of one to ten on how smart people are, right? <laughs> and it's going to be a bell <laughs> distribution. <laughs> so I think what you've done here is great work, and it's one of them jobs that I think, if you wanted to, would never stop. Because there's updates, there's developments, there's new technology, there's new applications. You know, it could become, it's like painting a bridge, right? You get across it, then you have to go back and start painting it again. Yeah. I was at the Building Commission Association conference recently, and there was a lot of talk about IoT, 5G, and the security issues around having IoT and 5G controllers, right? So, you know, I was speaking to a lady who commissions lighting systems, and she was saying, there is a real problem, right? She's done an airport. And there was a real big debate about how secure is this system? Could someone hack in and start playing around with the lights? And the answer was yes. <laughs> so what do you do about that? I think that will fall into the commissioning realm eventually and will start another specialism within a specialism, right? So I think there's, uh, there's room for this to grow and there's room for yeah. other disciplines, which I think will be algorithm writing, IT-based type solutions and commissioning will come in. So in Denmark, would you say if you're doing an airport, right, and you don't commission it, would the job be handed over without commissioning? Because in some countries I've worked in, it would. Well, commissioning is used on a lot of products. At the airport, they use commissioning at everything and other construction sites. 
on some projects they use commissioning and on some on a lot of them they don't and they still get handovered yeah we still have yeah. the deficiencies and the errors but people owners professional owners who has made more than one construction site they know what they are getting at the handover they yeah. know how many deficiencies there will be they know they cannot move the users into the buildings and they want so they look for something like commissioning and that is the people who is going to use commissioning in Denmark. A lot of the public uh, constructions do require some kind of commissioning now. So it's coming forward commissioning. Yeah. And many of the consulting engineering firms, they do also seek commissioning professionals. But it's, it's hard for them to find some because we do not educate people to become commissioning professionals. So it is people who learn from someone and then develop their competences and the know-how on how to perform the things. So where do commissioning engineers and practitioners come from in Denmark? Do they come from the design community or the trade community? Or? It's primarily people who, who have some experience within the operation and maintenance. All oh, right. So the FN in Denmark is called uh, mechanical specialists. It's a further education on four years. Normally, it's one who is electrician or has some speciality in ventilation. They take this further education on four years. This education gives you the insights yeah. to all of the technical installations within a building. So they have a good foundation because they know how a ventilation plant functions. They know about BMS. So quite easily, they can see the patterns on how things need to work together. So primarily, it's people who have something technical in their fingers who is becoming commissioning professionals. And it has to be a multidiscipline team, right? You've got to have BMS expertise, yeah. fire, engineering expertise, mechanical, electrical. PMS probably being one of the most important. That's certainly the same here. Just for our listeners, I mean, for those that aren't familiar with the commissioning process, I mean, when I think about some of the high-rises that are sort of in my vision here in front of me in the office, you know, some of these buildings take a couple of years to commission. I mean, to finally get the thing tuned to where it's supposed to be. And then there's an ongoing commissioning process. And some of these buildings are less sophisticated than some of the houses that get built around the world because I've been involved in residential buildings that also take two to three years to commission. Yeah. I think it's really important people understand just how integrated a building is and how valuable that integrated knowledge is as well, because you can get into some particular projects that will absolutely drive you crazy trying to figure out why something, you know, you got if then statements, right? So if this happens, then this is supposed to happen and here's the result. You struggle to find that stuff. And communications, I don't know about you guys, but I remember when the early forms of high-tech communication systems came in, we would get interference in sensor readings, for example. And it would take days to try to track it down because the guys would go out to the job site and they would do readings at the sensor, get the right ohm readings, and go back to the controller. And it's not even close. You know, and in between that, you've got miles and miles of conduit. And where the hell is the problem, right? So it's not a matter of just turning on a pump or firing up a chiller or a ventilation system. You need to know a lot of shit. Commission is a systems-based thing, right? A building is a system of systems, right? You start with the facade, you work your way into all the other systems, right? But the thing with systems is there are what I call single points of effectiveness. So if you have one sensor that's out, that can drive the whole system to be inefficient, inoperable, which will then cascade onto another system, and could set this chain of events in place that just takes the operational efficiency of that building down, right? And that's one of the commission's job, right? But the problem is to specify that 
and have that as a contractual requirement is really hard to do. So my, one of my ambitions for the commissioning process is that it becomes something you have to have to get completion, like official completion and an occupancy permit. Right? So when I say I have hate for the ASHRAE definition, the reason for that is if you follow this process, you too could have a body like Charles Atlas, you know. And the problem with the process is and the way ASHRAE write it up, they write it up so that if you're a contractor or whoever, just do this, give it a paper, we're all good, right? And you can do that and fill that paperwork in and still be no good and have something that doesn't work, right? There's a thing called chauffeur's knowledge. Have you ever heard of this? Mm. So there was a German physicist, I can't remember his name, like 100 years ago, and he would go around and give lectures and his chauffeur would drive him. So his chauffeur drives him to the lecture, the chauffeur sits at the front, the guy does the lecture, takes questions, goes on, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, 100 times. So in one day the chauffeur says to the physicist, I've seen that so many times, I could do that lecture flawlessly. So he says, okay, let's do it. Next one we go to, they walk in, the physicist sits down, pretends to be the chauffeur, the chauffeur gets up and gives a flawless presentation. And then the questions come. And he gets asked a question <laughs> and he says, why would you ask such a simple question? That question's so easy, I'll have my chauffeur answer it for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. So that is a phenomenon called chauffeur's knowledge, right? And yeah. in well, the way commissioning is practiced worldwide now, chauffeur's knowledge is passed off as real knowledge. So you get contractors or people who do not have domain experience, they get a tick list that tells them, look here, Yes or no, right? I mean, they don't know what they're looking at. They don't know how to interpret it. But they've got a tick list and they've signed it and it meets the ASHRAE process. So we're all good, right? And then a binder, this thick, gets handed over. When you see a really thick commissioning report and binder, be very suspicious, right? Because yeah. <laughs> that is the first sign of, that's a red flag for chauffeur's knowledge. So anyway, long story short, that's why I don't like ASHRAE. What I like is Ronald Reagan's definition of commissioning. Now, he didn't know he was given a definition of commissioning, right? He said, trust but verify. This is a Russian proverb that he used against the Russians very cleverly. That guy was such a good communicator, right? So I trust you to design it. I trust you to build it. I'm going to verify that it works per my requirements. If it does, we're all good, right? So that for me is a working definition of commissioning. But for that to be powerful, that has to be encoded in a contract that says, if the owner's appointed independent commissioning authority checks the performance of these systems, and they meet the specified performance, then I will accept the building. If it doesn't, I will not. So then there's a consequence, right? And then commissioning has power. But at the moment, like, for example, in just talk about Canada, because at this conference last week, you know, everyone's in a silo. There's fire person, test the fire alarm, the contacts that go to the elevator to ground the elevator when the fire alarm's pulled. That's not his job. So he just knows there's a contact there. Someone else has to land that hardwired interlock, right? Elevator guy does the elevator. He knows there's two points in his control panel for a hardwired install, but that's the electrical guy's problem, right? Electrical guy does not know what that is. I'd say for every staircase pressurization system I've tested, maybe only two times out of 10 is that interlock wired and working because it's nobody's job, right? It's a classic, yeah. Yeah, fire guy, not my job. Electrical guy wasn't in my package, mate. No one told me about it. Elevator guy says, no, I'm doing me, mate. It's a fire alarm. So who owns this, right? It's just a circle of yeah. like, not me. Yeah. So this is why commissioning exists, right? Because these outcomes are variable at best, right? 
when you guys were kids, did you ever play Barrel of Monkeys? You don't even know what that is? No, I don't know what it is. No. So, <laughs> all right. So in North America, because <laughs> clearly from the Danish guy and the English guy, I haven't got a clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> so you used to buy this container. It was a gift. It was a child's toy. And there was these little plastic monkeys inside, but they all interlocked. So you picked up the first monkey and then you dumped, so you dumped the pile of monkeys, right? So it's sitting there in front of you and it's all intertwined and it's a mess, right? Yeah. And you had to pick up the first monkey and then you grab a monkey out of the pile and you kept the chain going, right? And I see the commissioning guy, the master commissioning guy is the monkey is the electrical guy. Then one of the monkeys is the mechanical guy. One of the monkeys is a, the BMS system. And the job of the commissioning guy ultimately is to build that chain yeah. and make sure that it all works. And the master guy can do that, right? So I just exposed you to some of the childhood tortures that we went through <laughs> as kids. Barrel of monkeys, that's what a commissioning guy is. But there's still some way until commissioning is into reconstruction. Yeah. yeah. But I also think that we need for the different disciplines to learn about the integrations. You cannot just be educated into yes. ventilation or electricity. You need to learn about the integrations. So I think the school systems should to put on a, a new block called the, called system integration because yes. you cannot do anything in constructions anymore without the integrations. Yeah. So yeah, that's a really good point. That, actually, that I, don't, I don't know if it, at least on my radar screen, any universities or technical colleges that are teaching an integrated design course. That's interesting. I mean, if you take the where Bill Bamfleth teaches, right? He teaches architecture. Yeah, all yeah. they need is one course, one semester called systems approach and systems integration. What I mean by systems is systems thinking, right? Right. And then teach that in the context of building systems. So you're teaching two things, one by stealth, right? You're teaching systems thinking and you're using building systems as the example to get that message across. And people will come out of that understanding, particularly the course that Bill runs, right, which is architectural engineering. So his course is about buildings as systems, right, starting with the architecture and down to the systems within, right? right? So that's a systems approach. We're just not calling it that. And then the integration of them systems. And that would need a practitioner. I mean, maybe when you're a bit greyer, you would be a visiting, <laughs> what they call clinical professor here, where you would come in as a practitioner and say, right, you're year 3.5. Now I'm going to tell you how this really works, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you teach them with like case studies and about integration. And that would be a really useful, practical you know, I, lesson. I, Adam, I think you're onto something there, but I, I might say that, suggest that that would be the first course that they would take. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Think because then way. every course after that would support that story yeah. that. The system of systems, and this is how this is how everything works. You know, it's a Rubik's cube. Now we're going to start looking at each of the surfaces. Yeah. You know? Also, you know, just system within system. So let's talk about life safety. We all agree that's important, right? And then you could sort of go out from that. And yeah, I don't know. There's so much room. It's exciting in a way. There's a lot of room for growth and things to be done better, right? And I think there's two ways to do that. There's the training at the work face and on the job. And then there's the training and the education in college or university, right? They have to be done in parallel. You need mm. to attack both of them. But it's the same course, just delivered, one's delivered hands-on, one's delivered in an academic setting. But it's the same thing, right? 
Tell you, I think I should be your manager. I'm going to turn you into a professor with gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> That'll happen in the first week, uh, by the way, Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My hair was actually brown, and then I met Adam, and then a week later it went gray. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this is my in my dark moments when I had a kickoff meeting. I put a hood on and say, "I am the bringer of consequences. I am here to your project." Yeah. <laughs> he carries a sickle with him. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna when I started a commissioning business once. We were brainstorming ideas, and my idea was, "I want to call this Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse Commission." <laughs> Who's in? Nobody was in. <laughs> so obviously, we didn't do that. This is why you need partners, right? Because you know what your ideas are. <laughs> Regarding the thing on how to implement commissioning as a contract parameter. Yeah. On some cases, constructions in Denmark, we have something in our contracts. If you don't fulfill and deliver this area, then you have to pay a fee every day. Yeah, yeah. The penalty. Yeah, penalty clause. Yeah. Yeah, penalty. When we're going to use commissioning, you need to, to find someone who's really into the commissioning process to describe these parameters. Yes. Because unless you're just going to put in the Danish standard or the ASHRAE guideline and, and say, this is a contract parameter you need to fulfill. And then we have the process description without the final measurable outcome inside the contract documents. So in the Danish, what's calling this the lessons learned community for commissioners, a lessons learned community, we're working on a commissioning contract description which yes. could be used by owners for like a plug and play solution. Then you have the basic commissioning requirements within the contracts, because I think that is one of the hard parts on how to make commissioning count in your project. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now, back to the show. Your, your old employer, Copenhagen Airport, are the sort of employer that can really change the way things are done, right? Because they're such a significant employer. Their building is a very significant building. They can demand certain things, right? Other jobs can't. I saw a job I worked on in the UK when I was a property developer. We built this building for a bank. So the bank were coming in. So we had a design team, we had a construction team, we built it. But the bank, as part of their lease, put in a two-month period. So practical completion, substantial completion. They asked for a two-month period, and then they employed an m design firm and commissioning firm to come in and performance test all the systems. Because this was their headquarters, they had a data center in there. This was everything, you know, this building had to have diverse power fees, diverse data feeds. It was too much, probably too much risk in one building. But what was fascinating, because I was sort of like a secret commissioning guy, you know, I wasn't allowed to tell them I knew that because I was a property developer, right? But I watched these people come in and they said, right, are you done? We're done. So, okay. They took the site and they tested this thing to death, but building test, partial failure, because the idea was if, if, the data center went down. There was another data center down the road that would pick it up. We tested that, everything. And when they took that building, you knew that worked. There was a thousand percent chance everything was working great. Mm. And they took it clean and it was great. But wow, to say the contractors and the design team who designed that building were sweating bullets 
Everyone was like, oh, is this going to work? And that tells you that most things go over okay, but when your business is banking and storing data and having a trading floor, and if it goes down, you lose millions of dollars per hour, things go to another level, right? So that was commissioning as a compliance tool. And it's the only time I've ever seen that done in 40 years, by the way. <laughs> Just this bank was so awesome. If you want them in your building, this is what you had to do. And they did it. But whoa, it was a learning experience for everyone involved. But someone like Copenhagen Airport could require that, right? I say, build me a terminal. They could, yeah. yeah. But I think Copenhagen Airport gets into the same trouble as other building owners. Yeah. They do require commissioning on all the constructions. But if you're scheduled the new Airbus A30, they needs to come 1st of May next year. Yeah. Then you need to be ready. And if you're not ready, then you need to make the gate ready and some of the lighting and fixtures and other may not be ready. It's still the woggle woggle part when yeah. doing the handover. So I did I commissioned JFK Terminal 4 back in 2000. And there was this deadline, DBO, Data Beneficial Occupation Equity, right? And on that day, the mayor was coming, the governor was coming, and some other person was coming. And they were going to fly this plane in at six in the morning. And this building was not ready. <laughs> so like, we were testing life safety. So the compromise was, okay, get all the life safety systems open and like four gates. And we were testing the life safety systems up to midnight. And that plane came in at six the next morning. But we then spent another eight months with the building occupied and testing and commissioning. It was a nightmare. Wow. all involved, right? But you get this deadline, right? This hard deadline. So this is what I call the Mexican standoff. I'm going to open my building and the government's coming, but we're not ready. So the construction just goes along and there's meetings, there's meetings. And all of a sudden there's like, you know, you see the Mexican standoff, the guy's got the gun each side and there's a circle of guns. And you're just at some point opening the building and the construction guy not collapsing become one and the same thing, right? And the construction people always win that standoff because they mm-hmm. say, I can't do it. So what do you want me to do here? Do you want me to go? I'll yeah. go. You're not going to your building, right? So <laughs> this is good contractors can play that game very well. So my dream is that commissioning becomes a compliance tool and a verification tool. The owners and big organizations that lease massive buildings use to make sure they get what they pay for. And it's not based on, I think it's ready. It's based on, I tested it and it's, ready, and it performs this, this, yeah. this, and this, right? That's hopefully where I think it's going. I think it's hard in North America because of the way the contraction situation is here, but I think it's more that approach is easier in Europe because there's less unions and, frankly, less corruption. Sorry, North America. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, <laughs> within the Europe, we also had the new EU taxonomy yeah. It's a new uh, EU regulation which requires building owners to document the energy energy usage yeah. and how the buildings perform, like environmental sustainable parameters. So I also think that will maybe carry a little commissioning into the buildings. And then also the life safety installations, those standards are also being upped. So there are some some required compliance standards for some of the system integrations tests. Luckily, in Denmark. Is there any uh, requirement to meet the environmental standards? Was it 7730, ISO 7730, or was it 1212, 852, or something like that? Lighting, sound, thermal, air quality? Yeah. 
We do have some Danish standards regarding the energy usage and the sustainable parameters in Denmark and then also the EU. So I think that's going to be a, a really hard topic the coming years on how can we document that our buildings are performing according to our design yeah. because, well, we can design really good buildings with low energy usage, but the other part is when the users are coming and we're going into operation, the buildings are using much more energy and they are not as sustainable as we designed them to be. Yeah, I mean, look, people so need to understand a lot of energy use is people trying to compensate for bad environments, indoor yes. environments. Yes. I mean, every energy unit that's converted, you know, into a kilowatt, into a therm, BTU per hour, whatever, is somebody trying to avoid discomfort, ultimately. Yes, so, you know, when you think about post-occupancy surveys, which is a reflection of how well the architectural engineering team did in meeting the human factor needs. And I mean, the database, the ASHRAE database is full of, I mean, it's embarrassing, really. I mean, we, it's, we have a long ways to go to meet these environmental standards. You have 80% failure or 70% failure, non-compliance with, you know, in, in North America, standard 55 or 62.1, it's, or the lighting standards. It tells you we're not anywhere close to achieving what occupants want, never mind what the building owners want, but what do the occupants want? I, this is why I salute what Copenhagen Airport were doing, right? Because they obviously had a commissioning team and it's an operational airport. So let's talk about the FM side of things, right? In the life cycle of a building, let's say 25, 30 years, maybe 50 years for an airport, the construction and design is just like a tiny piece, right? The real yeah. piece is the life cycle operation of that building. So you're talking about facilities managers. So if you're a facilities manager, your baseline goal has to be to operate that building at an operational level and efficiency level that's flat. But that means not deteriorating, right? But most buildings deteriorate over time in terms of performance, right? It's really just how fast does that happen. My question is, why can't they progressively become more efficient through better operations, mm. better algorithms, better tuning? Is I guess, continuous commissioning is what a lot of North Americans would yeah. call that, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a potential book here. I'm saying I'm, I'm your manager again, right? <laughs> <laughs> commissioning for facilities managers, right, which is a two-part book. There's, did you know... Life safety systems have to be mandatory tested every six months. Most people don't, by the way. If I was working for an insurer and there was a fire that came for someone died, I could get yeah. them off that paying out every time. Just go to the FM team and say, show me all your mandatory life safety testing certificates and test reports. Nine out of 10 people would not be able to cough that up, right? So there's that. And then there's also, if you're a facilities manager working directly for the airport, right, and you're actually, it's in your interest to keep that thing going as good as it can be. The question has to be, every day you come to work, how can I make this system and building more efficient, more operationally better? How can I improve the IAQ in that terminal? I mean, if I'm a passenger, you know, humidity, noise level, temperature, these things matter to me, right? But I'm transitory. But you still, I, I go through a lot of airports because I'm a bit of a nomad, right? I can walk in an airport and tell you which ones are good, just being yeah. in there for, like for five minutes and which ones are horrible. Which ones have been done properly, right? So if you're an FM person, just the game has to be from a continuous mission point of view, how do I optimize this even more? Even if it's just like half a percent or one percent, half a percent, one percent a year, every year, on a compound basis, that is huge, right? Put this yeah. in a practical term. So we had a client, this is a large industrial facility, I think it was a hundred and some thousand square feet. And I just want to talk about one small slice of the pie. 
And I remember this was after the first year of operation. And because the building was done, like the architectural design was done incredibly well, high performance building, the building was really easy to control the environment. It wasn't influenced a whole lot by the outside. And I remember I was down in Austin, I think, Texas, and I got a call from our, the client up in Northern Alberta. And he said, Robert, it's minus 40 degrees Celsius today. The boilers are running at uh, 103 degrees Fahrenheit. And we're working with a 20 degree delta T. And I want to know if it's okay if we drop the temperature down to 95. (laughs) And for those that have any understanding of efficiency, if you can take that return temperature down another five or seven degrees, when you're already low, that engineer that's at the boiler manufacturer, he gets out of school, he learns about combustion, he learns about heat exchangers, the log mean temperature differences, blah, 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 right? And his biggest wet dream in the world is to have somebody use his equipment the way he engineered it, right? And so, you know, no pun intended there, but that's what we want to hear in the commissioning process is continually extracting as much work as we can out of the conversion process. And if we can do that, like you said, Adam, over the years of a building with lighting, the thermal systems, everything that's in there, all the energy stuff. Wow. You're doing what every engineer in the world dreams of doing, right? And I think it's what we're talking about here is what a lot of people assume actually happens, but doesn't, right? Right. Yeah, you exactly. Know, yeah. Unless you're in the stew, like working in it, if you're outside looking in, you think, well, of course I've given them an FM contract. Of course that's what they're doing. So I'm paying them for, right? It's like the old saying you used to have when I was a developer. No one gave a construction contract out and said, you know what? I'm okay with it being a bit late. I'm all right with 5,000 defects. No problem. Just go nuts. <laughs> said nobody. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's exactly what happens pretty much all the time, yeah. right? <laughs> I don't know. So, look, I think you have another career here, writing more books and teaching for sure. But I want to talk about also your recent sort of change in direction. Uh, you've left Copenhagen Airport and you've gone all in on your new venture. What's that about? I like commissioning. And I like commissioning in many aspects. <laughs> well, the book, but also the digital way. It was actually at the airport. When the airport found out that commissioning was a good idea, both for the construction cost and the original costs, I got so many commissioning projects. Well, and I handled all of them in Excel spreadsheets. It went okay with 10 projects. Then we went to 20, 30, 50. And well, I couldn't handle any spreadsheets anymore. So that was the start for finding a way to handle the commissioning projects online. So I tried some different Danish platforms and... And we'll try to find something on the internet to how to do it. I didn't find anything. So that was the start for my own software. Besides doing commissioning in the daytime, I also like to do some computer programming at the nighttime. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> and that became CX Planner. Right. It took, it took some years and then some testing at the airport with my colleagues and the contractors and designers out there. And one year ago, I met one of the contractors who said, Thomas, this is brilliant. Others also need to, to try this. And I said, well, others, not only me. So he was like the push on the button for me to see that CX Planner was not just to be used at the airport, but could maybe yeah. be used other places in Denmark. So he has been working on, well, more the mindset and branding the software in Denmark. So 1st of August, it was the time for me to try to go out in Denmark and and sell the product. It is a commissioning software. I am a commissioning guy, but it's also a project management software. Yes. I think that doing things more digitally 
and smarter also can help us minimize the fault and errors on construction projects. Even though that only it's the ventilation guy, he can do his quality assurance online and file sharing, then we have everything in one place. So I also want to give all the other parties in the construction projects the possibility to use some digital tool. So it's like a mix. When we perform commissioning, we need the other parties to participate. I cannot just do commissioning by myself. I need the ventilation guy to participate. But if I need to bring him into a platform where I'm managing the commissioning process, he also needs to draw some benefits from it. Yes. So it's, well, it's with the mindset that everyone who logs in gets some benefits from it. So what tipped you over? So it starts off as a, to use North American vernacular, a side hustle, right? So you've got your day job. By day, you're a mild-mannered commissioning guy. By night, you're fighting crime and writing. (laughs) (laughs) So what tipped you into going full-time? What was the, did you just get so busy with it? Yeah, it's been a long journey. I've been working, well, it's too much work to have two jobs to focus full-time on. But I was scared. I was scared to leave my, leave my job. Scared how, how should I pay for my apartment and manage life in general. And then I liked my job at the airport. The airport was a fantastic workplace. The colleagues, the, the projects, everything. So it's, it was a personal journey I had to go on. Yeah. And then, well, it is my partner, James Christian, who found the software for a year ago, who helped me to, well, not see the light, but... But see, that it's okay to try. It's okay to fail if you fail, Thomas. You have to do what's fun. He helped me in a personal journey to accept that I can try something else, not only the safe choice. So, and sometimes after, after the choice, yeah. Yeah, congratulations on that. You know, it's, I think when I, man, I was going back a long time ago, there was a book, it was called The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. I think it was the author. And The E-Myth was the entrepreneurial myth. And he talks a lot about, People that start up businesses, and most of them are the technical people, and then they get into realizing the business starts to grow and grow. And then so now they're doing the business side and the technical side, and eventually the brain starts to implode because they got, they're got trying to juggle. Yeah, exactly, right? And his advice was, if you want to be a business owner, then you have to love the business part of it. If you love the technical stuff, then you want to feed your technical, but don't try to do both. And at some time, the business gets so big or gets to a point where you're so stressed out that you have to physically hand over the responsibility and hire somebody to operate the business so that you can do what you enjoy doing, which is the technical side. Because so many businesses, just they struggle and they struggle because the owner just doesn't know when to get the hell out of the way. Yes. I've been full-time two months now, and that is a realization which came to me pretty fast because (laughs) having a business, I like Sometimes it takes a lifetime. But but then there's marketing, there's employment, there's customer support, there's so much stuff. So I also think it's important to find some good people, to have some people to talk with them, people who you rely on and who wants to help you. Kudos for doing it because entrepreneurship is not easy. And it is okay to fail and you're young enough to fail and still go on, right? I mean, the chances of you being unemployed and not having a job are zero, right? If this all stopped tomorrow, you could pick the phone up, the airport will probably take you back, right? Or you could go work to 100 different places. I could put you in the Middle East tomorrow if you wanted, right? So you've got no <laughs> job issues, right? Yeah. So you should take that chance, right? But I'll give you a bit of a benefit of what happened to me. So I had a commissioning business and we developed this digital own manual. So in my mind, because I've 
professional services, right? I'll sell it on the side. I'm selling them, you know, no, didn't work like that. So what I didn't realize and I learned the hard way was a software business needs developers full-time and it needs a sales full-time. Because when I realized I'd done something that people wanted and then when we started selling it, it needed like more sales to get the income and then more support and development. And I just didn't have the capital to do that. So I thought, all right, I'll sell it. And every person who came through that office to look at it and kick the tires said, where's your sales force? They expected to see two guys in a cubicle like phoning up, you know. So this is the thing, professional services versus software. What you're doing is a Venn diagram of professional knowledge and services and software, right? And you've got to do both well. And what I found was I was good at the professional services technical side and I really sucked <laughs> running a software business. <laughs> right. right, yeah. Because just the questions that kept coming out every time I tried to sell it, there we go, where's the sales guy? How many developers have you got? I go, I'll point to a stressed guy in the corner, it's him. <laughs> 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 so you know, working out what you do well and what you don't do well and realizing sales and marketing is as important as the developing was really a bit of an eye-opener for me because I didn't know, I mean, I didn't know, right? A business is a machine like any other machine. Yeah. You know, it's got moving parts and you have to make sure that you design the machine, engineer it as it should be engineered, yeah. and then make sure all of the moving parts are doing what they're supposed to do because you think about cash flow, right? You can have all the greatest ideas in the world and you can be selling shit like crazy, but if you got nobody collecting the money, you're done, <laughs> you know? It is a system, a commissioning system, with all the parts integrated to each other. Yeah, It is. It really is. And you can't ignore any part because as soon as you start to ignore the, some of the critical things, the wheels fall off, right? And so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be stalking you like a crazy ex-girlfriend. I'll be fascinated to see the journey you're going on, right? Because I know <laughs> it's not easy. It looks easy to the outside, but it's not, right? So kudos on that. So I've got another question. Do you run the CX Wiki for commissioning process in Denmark? Is that you? Yeah, that is me. <laughs> of course you do. Because you've got yeah. a lot of time on your hands, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was before the book. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm fascinated about sharing the commissioning knowledge in Denmark. And I want more people to perform and do commissioning. If that's going to succeed, more people need to know how to perform the commissioning. Yeah. I was really in the need when I started and tried to find out how to do it. I relied on my mentor, Ole. Not everyone can have Ole as a mentor. So those who don't have him, they also need some material and some guidance to it. So I do believe that sharing the knowledge and how to is the way forward for our commissioning process. Yeah. We need good commissioning practitioners, professionals. If the big building owners also need to say they want commissioning, so we need also to perform a, a pretty good commissioning process. Yeah. And we only do that by educating each other. At some point in the future, there's like digital commissioning and physical commissioning sort of come together, right? And they become a process on their own. Like it becomes like a, I guess the goal for any commissioning software is to make it that chauffeur's knowledge doesn't blow up, right? It's like if you're a contractor and you're definitely not hiring, you're going to say you're doing a low-end building like a hotel or residential. For some reason, no one cares about them, right? <laughs> That's a constant all over the world, right? You can half-ass that and no one cares, right? So maybe if there could be a commissioning process that's software-based that says, right, design phase, do this and put this document here, then check this and come back and put another document, you know, something that just yeah. like takes you through it so that 
even if it's not your domain expertise, but you're adjacent, you could get through it and hopefully come with an outcome for the building, right? You couldn't do that on a data center or something very sophisticated like an airport, but for a residential condo or a hotel, which is basically a condo, (laughs) you could. I think that would work. That's my working theory anyway. I've convinced no one of this, by the way. This is just the things that turn around in my head. I think it's a good idea. I think that's somehow going to be the future. More data in, and if we're going to share the data across countries, across professionals, then in the end, we also have a good data crunching engine, which can help us to provide better design material. So you said something important AR showing the errors before. So you said something very important there. The way it's about internationally sharing good practice, working practice and data and bringing some consistency to it, right? So at the moment, you've got these, you've got the Denmark silo, the UK silo, the Canada silo, right? They overlap a little bit, but not enough. It'd be one of the things that needs to happen in the future, and maybe the internet is the way this happens, is these practices come together and it gets sorted out what works and what doesn't work, and what doesn't work gets thrown away, and then you get this growing international consensus on what commissioning is and how it's done. That would be the right outcome for what you're doing, right? That would be awesome. Yeah. yeah. Again, that's one of the reasons Robert and I like doing this podcast because it's one way to facilitate that, right? That's why, you know, you're doing good work doing this and I would never have you on if I didn't think this was good and people should know about it, right? <laughs> well, the truth is, the only reason why I do the podcast with Adam mm-hmm. is because if you're at a party and you're talking to somebody, you begin to tell them what you do. They'd start to stare at their feet. They, I got to call my mom or... But you guys, you're like engaging, like, right? You're not going to run away. You want to talk because we're, we're all brothers and sisters here. And But at a party, you're like, yeah, he's the commissioning guy. Don't talk to him. Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> exactly right. Okay. okay, so I think we're coming up. Oh, God, wow, that's an hour nearly gone. That went quick. <laughs> we need to wrap up. But Thomas, I'm a big fan of what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. And if you're doing something new and you want to come on, let us know. I'll put links for everyone who's listening. There'll be links in the show notes to the books and where you can buy it. So it's on Amazon, right, I guess. And it'll be available in ebook on Amazon. Yeah, it is today available on ebook and Amazon and Google Books and Kobo. Right. Nice. Well done. So the other thing to say to everyone who's listening here, right, we live in a wonderful time where the gatekeepers to publishing are just gone. So just think about this. Thomas has an idea, writes a book, publishes it, and it's available all over the world, physically and in digital. That is goddamn amazing, right? If you'd explained that to me 30 years ago, I'd have said, get out of here, that's Star Trek, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you know, the only thing now that prevents knowledge transfer and things getting better is how much you want to do it and how good you are at doing it, right? I mean, you know, a lot of books are dross, but technical books, they're not stories, right? This is not a story. This is a how-to. There should be more like this. So, yeah, I'm all over this, man. So kudos for you for doing that. And best of luck with your new venture. I hope it goes well. And yeah, if you take on any more projects, because obviously you don't have enough to do, let us know. Yeah. <laughs> well, <Adam, do. laughs> You know, we should also take this advantage to throw a couple of quick-fired questions at Thomas. Yes. He's got great answers. So, Thomas, you mentioned a couple times in this episode that I don't know if we talked about in the last episode, it had to do with mentorship. So if you were, you know, standing in front of a graduating class of architects and engineers and your subject of that 
lecture was mentorship. What would you say to the students? Always give back and never say no to a student to learn, to teach them anything. That was the mantra which my mentor told me. Thomas, I'm going to teach you everything about commissioning. Just promise that when someone, a professional or a student asks you, you always answer them and help them. Yeah, I love it. That is so true. Yeah, that is so true. I mean, I, the fondest memories I have of my career is the letters I get back. And Adam, you're probably the same. The people say, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. It's huge. There's no price tag to it. There's not money. It's not. It's just a great feeling that you get from helping somebody. So, yeah, great answer. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. So, my quick fire question is this. Let's just say someone is sort of 18 and aware there is a possibility of a career as a commissioning engineer. What university course would you steer them towards that would best prepare them? Well, in the Danish structure, yeah. I would push them into some, some practical education first maybe as an electrician or a BMS specialist, to try to do some construction works, be yeah. on site, see the errors and uh, deficiencies and, and everything which goes wrong. Yeah. And then after that, you can do some uh, commissioning education or some uh, speciality within the automation. But first, go out, try to see, take a practical education. I agree, because it's yeah. not, this isn't a academic subject. It's a applied subject, right? There's a doing to it that is necessary. And this is, yeah. I think, one of the other reasons I get a bit fed up with the ASHRAE definition, right? It doesn't acknowledge that. It acknowledges it in a chauffeur's knowledge point of view, but not in a deep way. Certainly in North America, professional engineering is more of an academic-type, university-type track. And there seems to be a bit of a gap between that and the, the college track and the hands-on learning track. And there's this like chasm between the two. Now, Robert and I came up sort of like more the college track and then sort of jumps over to the professional track. But really, if I'm honest, it was really the hands-on knowledge and college, not the university stuff I did that really helped me the most in my career. I know you've got to have the university stuff to get the credential, right? That's the problem. (laughs) (laughs) But so, yeah, I agree with you, man. It is an applied subject and hands-on learning is probably the most valuable thing you're going to get. So, yeah, totally agree on that. So I'm trying to get my son to be an apprentice electrician. I've convinced him. So, yeah, I'm all over that. That's a good choice. Yeah. Trying to get an electrician or a plumber to your house in Canada is like getting the Queen of England to cut the grass for you. It is so <laughs> Oh, welcome to Denmark. It's the same yeah. Yeah. I've never met an unemployed plumber or electrician in my life. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if you want to pay the bills, man, that's a good job. Anyway, listen, yeah. Thomas, thank you so much for coming on. Um, yeah, Thomas, be, yeah. I'll put all the links in the show notes. If you're doing anything interesting or you just want to check in, just hit us up and uh, we'll we'll connect. Will do. It was nice to see you. Yeah, okay. likewise. Cheers, man. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Yeah, bye. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet, or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. That team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional, 
are functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one, 612-460-8305. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> and I'm, well, it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. Sensor Suite, yep. They're an innovator in smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. You mean Sensor Suite are moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know. Another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Got to go to sensorsuite.com or call 1 855 773 6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the NFS Complex podcast and listen to Sensor Suite CEO Glenn Spry. And now back to the show. You know, Adam, we've had a lot of guests on and all of them are good. I mean, we, yeah. we've never had a bad guest on. And Thomas, what I love about the guy is his enthusiasm and passion and his focus. We talked about mentorship, right? And I think that's a really valuable thing. And yes. I love the way I love the way you answered the question on mentorship. And that is giving back. And when a student asks you a question from left field, you may never even know the student. They'll say, Hi, I'm so and so from the university of wherever or the college of wherever in the world. You know, I'm working on a paper, I'm working on a project, and I have a question. Would you be so kind to answer it? Right? Because that happens all the time. And his response, you know, never, never turn down those questions. That's give back. And you can see that in him, right? Like he's just a good guy. He is so going to be like the wise old owl teaching people when he gets older. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Right. So the mentorship stuff, I'm really glad that he brought it up several times. He having a good mentor and then also then becoming a mentor. And then in many ways, when you write a book as he has and develop the tools as he has, you know, it doesn't get filed under the category of mentorship, but reality is it is. It is mentorship in a different form. Absolutely. So what he's doing is mentorship at scale. When you write a book, a how-to book, that's mentoring okay. at scale, right? But also making yourself accessible to questions, that's the secret, right? Putting something out there and not being available, that's really not all of it. You no. need to be available. Yeah. And you need to be the example as well. So one of the things I admire about Thomas is, when we started this podcast, in my mind, I always wanted it to be a positive influence to like young engineers or undergrads so they could find someone to model themselves on, right? So if you as a graduate and you want to be a commissioner engineer, modeling yourself on Thomas would not be a bad idea, right? <laughs> There's someone there you can look to. He'll respond to you. He's putting good work out. He's putting guidance out. That's awesome, man. I don't know where he gets his energy from. <laughs> oh, and like you said, like, What's interesting about him is that, like you said, 10 years ago, I guess, is when he sort of got started in the commissioning, yeah. was A, he recognized that he had an interest in something, and he recognized that to the point where he said, okay, I want to make this a career. Yeah. And then at night, as many of us have done over our careers, <laughs> he had a side job, <laughs> yeah. writing software and writing books and that kind of stuff. And so for those that are, you know, the young students that are listening to this program is that if you recognize that you have a passion or something. Feed that passion. Yes. 
I think one of the biggest tragedies in life would be for someone who has a passion for something and then get to the end of their life and never have nurtured it. Oh, yeah. But there's a reality check there. There's a reality check there. So, Mr. Wonderful, what's his name? Oh, Kevin O'Leary. Kevin O'Leary. So, whether you love the guy or hate the guy, his dad was pretty smart. So, his dad, because Kevin wanted to be a photographer, I think it was. So he was coming up and he had this passion for photography and he wanted to feed that passion. And his dad basically said to him, Kevin, you know, you're never going to become rich as a photographer. Maybe you will. I mean, there's a small percentage of some of those photographers that make some good money. But he said, most photographers like musicians, you know, what you need to do is you need to make some money and then you'll have all the money in the world to buy the fanciest cameras and the biggest guitars, the best guitars. And Kevin, you know, probably fought that for a little bit, then realized that, yeah, I like to have cameras and I like to play guitar, but I can't do it on a photographer's budget. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. Right? So there's two lessons in there. So Thomas is is that when you recognize a passion, that's a gift. Don't turn your back on it. Really analyze what that passion is all about. And then just say to yourself, well, realistically, is that passion a career? Or do I need a career to feed that passion? Because there's two different things, right? Yes. Yeah, that's a great way of analyzing it, actually. The other thing I want to give Thomas a shout out for is the entrepreneurial side. So like property development, construction, you know, it's normally big projects, lots of capital involved. It's quite hard to be entrepreneurial sometimes, right? Unless you really go big. And he's found a way to be an entrepreneur in that space, as well as doing everything else he's doing. Yeah. And I like that because entrepreneurs... And sort of new businesses, that's where innovation comes from. That's where new directions come from. That's where jobs come from, right? So again, kudos for that. So he's a good example of like an engineer, a practitioner, a teacher, and an entrepreneur, man. That's not a bad resume. Yeah, that's a great resume. I wasn't half, even 10% as good as his show. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we need to do a show. Where I'm going with that is when I think about associations, right? So industries evolve. And then members of that industry get together and say, well, we ought to form an association. Yeah. And then so the association starts to evolve and it becomes a membership, a club, a cult, as we said the other day, other interview, a cult. And then if you're not a member of the cult, yeah. you're kept outside. Yeah. And as a result, all innovation never occurs within the cult. It occurs actually outside of the cult, right? Yeah. And Thomas has found a way because the commission in it, it's evolving. Yes. Right. I mean, on Very the continuum much. of architecture, it's relatively new. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years of architecture going back to, you know, tens of, well, what did I say, 5,000 years ago, yeah. 3,000 years ago. On a continuum, that's a long period of time. And commissioning is just a small slice of that timeline. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's a tiny slice of a slice, right? Yeah. So Thomas has done a good job of sort of playing in that league at the peripheral yeah. and create and carving out himself a nice, career and a nice opportunity to make some money but also you can see it in his eyes it's not about the money it's about making buildings better achieving these sustainability goals you probably agree with this is that the money is just a reflection of the things that you've done and if you do things well then the money comes back to you yeah you'll attract it yeah yeah and making money as a goal unto itself yeah some people make that happen i think they're soulless (laughs) You know, yeah. <laughs> but, but when you look at people that have done stuff because they have a passion for it and they feed yeah. that passion and they do it for bigger reasons that ultimately they get rewarded for it. Yeah, I think, absolutely, Thomas, I think Thomas is on that path. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. 
Uh, more people like him, the construction industry would be a better place, in my opinion. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, okay, so man. Well, that was a good one. I shall see you on the next one. All right, Adam. That was a pleasure. Cheers, Bye. bud. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.